0: Let's fill our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we just take this time out of our busy lives, out of the busy world that we live in, just to come and sit before your word, Father, we pray you speak to us, instruct us, Lord. Father, just as it must have been for the disciples who got to sit at your feet and listen to you teach, so now, Lord, teach us, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. Give us, Lord, ears that are open and ready to hear, and, Lord, hearts that are ready to receive what you have for each one of us this morning. Father, stir us, challenge us, we pray. Help us to learn the lessons that we can see from the life of this man, Elijah, who your word tells us was a man just like we are. As Father, take my feeble frame and my thoughts, and now just use them for your glory. Lord, that we be edified and built up as a body here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We were journeying on through the book of 1 Kings and looking at the life of this incredible man, Elijah. We've seen how Elijah just walked into the court of the king of the nation. Now, be it a divided nation, uh, that, but Israel had been divided some 60 years before this. And the kings of the north had had great opportunity to to be blessed by God, to serve him. And yet every one of them successively have moved, had moved a little further away from God. And to the point that we get to Omri, who did more evil than all the kings that were before him, and then his son Ahab comes to the throne. And Ahab then just takes it to a whole new level. And we've been looking at how Elijah just walks into this courtroom and says, there's not going to be rain for three and a half years, and walks out again. And so it's the the boldness of that, 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 the courage he had to have to do that. And yet, as we've seen and we've looked at already, and it was, it was particularly last week, we were looking at the whole basis of prayer and faith. And Elijah didn't go in and just request something and hope with his fingers crossed that God might do it. Elijah knew that God had already said in his word that if the nation, if the people would reject him as their king, as their God, and if they'd go and serve other gods, then he would stop the rain. And so Elijah simply holds God to account and says, God, you said you're going to do this. And because he knew that God is faithful, he walks in there and makes this incredible statement. And we've seen that and we saw last week this whole three and a half year period come to an end as Elijah takes King Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the children of Israel to the top of Mount Carmel and we have this showdown. Mm-hmm. Elijah says, you know, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, then fine, go ahead, serve him. And so Baal's prophets stand there and from morning until noon they call on the name of their gods praying that he will come down and set this offering alight. Nothing happens. They go on to the evening time. end up cutting themselves and shedding their own blood in the hope that that would get their gods' attention. But of course their gods not real, so this doesn't work. And then Elijah, at the time of the evening sacrifice, for the Jews, we look back in the Torah, there were two times a day, one in the morning, one in the evening, when a sacrifice, an innocent substitute was to be offered. Its blood was to be shed to atone for sin. And to the world, this is a very strange thing. Why is it that we have all this blood shedding in the Bible? Because blood is that which brings life. Leviticus seventeen eleven, a very key verse in Scripture says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The very first thing that is classified as living, truly alive in the account of creation we have in Genesis, is on day 5. It's that which has blood. And so, because God had said that if we sin, we would die. This is a promise that was given to Adam and Eve, that if they were to transgress, if they were to break the rules, the laws that God had set for them, and very simply, they only had one real law to keep, which was to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they break it. And God said that the moment you eat thereof, you will die. Now, spiritually, they did die at that moment. But physically, their bodies then started to die from that point. But rather than them being cut off for God for eternity, God then makes a way through an innocent substitute. And we find that in Genesis, God ordains the very first blood sacrifice. These two animals, these skins are taken, their their blood is shed And it becomes a clothing. Not just in a a physical sense. Yes, there were clothing, there were skins that covered them and protected them physically. But it was a clothing spiritually. See, God has said that the punishment for sin is death. And therefore, the shedding of blood is that which would bring death. But God says, I won't have your death, I'll have the death of an innocent substitute in your place. And then we see this all the way through, ultimately leading to Calvary. Where Jesus' blood is shed for the sins of the world and now anyone who looks to Jesus and believes that his blood was shed for them will be saved it's as simple as that it's such an easy thing for us because it cost God so much and Elijah at the time of that evening sacrifice again the blood of this innocent substitute being slain as we said last week God's wrath didn't fall upon King Ahab didn't directly fall upon the prophets of Baal. Didn't fall upon the children of Israel. It fell upon this innocent substitute. And of course we see this incredible picture of Jesus in the whole of this context. The Bible tells us in the volume of the book it is written of me speaking of Jesus and every page of the Bible we see Jesus embedded in the, the details in the text. This is an incredible moment though for Elijah. You know, for three and a half years, maybe he'd been wondering what was God going to do and how this was all going to pan out. Knowing that he'd already prayed that it was not going to rain for three and a half years and God had granted his request and now it comes to the end of that time. And as we said, for the rain to come again, Elijah knew full well that the hearts of the people would have to be turned back to God. That was the condition that God had set. That if the people would repent, if they would turn back to him, then God would allow the rain to come again. And so... He brings them to this place, Mount Carmel. This offering is offered. The people repent. They turn back to God. The prophets of Baal are put to death. And you think everything's going well for Elijah. But then we read, picking up verse chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel, now Jezebel being the wife of Ahab, this wicked woman. Probably the most evil woman Recorded in history. Then Jezebel sent a message unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. This is a very real death threat for Elijah. You know, Elijah probably, if you and I had been there, we'd have been thinking, That was great, God. On top of that mountain, the fire of God came down, it burned up the sacrifice. The hearts of the nation have been turned back to you. This is wonderful. And suddenly he finds he's on the most wanted list. And Jezebel is trying to find him, trying to track him down. She wants to kill him. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said here's enough now oh Lord take away my life for I'm not better than my fathers you know there's this moment that Elijah comes to here where he just gets to the end of himself you know all this effort all the work no doubt physically quite drained through this whole experience and now finding that he's being chased with the intent of being killed and he runs away He travels, first of all, about 130 miles to the south. This is now to the area of Judah, as we see mentioned there. And we said also previously, we looked to this when we were looking at the situation with Jeroboam, and that prophet that went to speak to Jeroboam, after that time of ministry, no doubt a little bit drained, a little bit bit weary, went and sat under that tree. Had he not have done that, the other prophet wouldn't have found him and invited him back, and the whole thing that then led to his death. And sometimes after ministry, we can get very drained, very weary. And Elijah's in exactly that place here. You know, it's a time that we need to be most vigilant. We're told that Satan is like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. And Satan doesn't play fair. He'll pick on whoever's weak, whoever's low, whoever's feeling drained and lacking in natural resource. And that's when we most need to call upon God. Elijah, making this comment here, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I mean, Elijah, just a kind of a realisation thing here, that, you know, he's nothing special. You know, and he almost is, is like, I've tried so hard, God, I really thought this was going to change everything, and it hasn't. You know, I've I'm, I'm not achieved anything that people that have gone before me haven't achieved, and just wishing that it could be over. I mean, you may have had moments in your life where you've been there, where you just thought, I just can't carry on. I can't keep up the pace. I can't do this anymore. You know, Lord, just just put an end to this for me. Take me home. Oswald Chambers makes this comment, just building on these verses. He says, Elijah did an actually cowardly thing, yet he was not a coward. He ran away because he was absolutely baffled. He could not understand what God was doing. We cannot judge men by what they actually do, because the reasons of two men who do the same thing may be entirely different. Another man might have run away because he was a craven coward. Elijah fled because it seemed as if he had been let down by God in everything in which he had stood for him. Quoting from Jeremiah, he carries on and says, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will thou indeed be unto me as a deceitful brook, as waters that fail? Those are the words of Jeremiah. Also Chambers comments, and says, This sense of being baffled knocks everything out. A man is like a sparrow in a gale. It's not a question of losing his wits, but of realizing he has none. The battle in spiritual life is... On whom or on what am I building my confidence? You see, Elijah's going to come to a, a place that we're going to see where he realizes it's not about the result. And so often for us, that's what we focus on. We focus on the result. And, you know, maybe from a worldly perspective, we look at success in our, our job, in our career, in our family, in our finances, whatever, and fill in the blank. And maybe we think that's the, the measure of success for us. But in a spiritual sense, maybe we look at doing things for God, being involved in ministry or service. Another quote of Oswald Chambers, he makes a comment that, you know, after the 70, it returned with joy after, the, they said, even the spirits are subject to us. Jesus effectively says, and this is what Oswald Chambers comments, You know that don't rejoice in successful service but rejoice because your hearts are rightly related to me. And that really is the the same message that's coming through here. That, as Oswald Chambers is highlighting, it's about whom we are putting our confidence in. You see, was Elijah putting his confidence in the end result, thinking that that was the important thing? That the objective of all of this was to see the nation brought back to the Lord? Well, in one sense, there is that element, and yet for Elijah as an individual... God was wanting to teach him a lesson here, to show him that his confidence must be in God and in God alone. And this is one of the hardest lessons that we as Christians ever learn. Verse 5, we carry on, it says, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat we'll look at another quote of Oswald Chambers later but it's interesting to note that this supernatural visitation and the angel says something so normal, so practical just get up eat something and he looks and behold and there was a cake beaten on the coals and a cruise of water at his head and he'd eat and drink and laid him down again so God supernaturally provides this meal for him and he's refreshed But again, lays back down and then we carry on. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went into into the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And so God now takes him back to a very significant place. A place where he's going to learn this lesson that God is trying to teach him. Let's just talk for a moment about this place, Horeb, because it's very significant and we'll understand a little bit more about why I think God takes him there. It's also known as Mount Sinai. Now, this is the mountain where God appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. In the first couple of verses, we read that. This is where God revealed himself to Moses as the I Am, the self existent one, the one who's there from before time began. And it was to this mountain that Moses later would lead the children of Israel after he'd led them, like God's leading out of Israel out of Egypt. It's here also then that the God gives the law to Moses for the children of Israel for the nation, including the Ten Commandments. And it's here now that God is going to meet with Elijah and teach him this very valuable lesson. Later, incidentally, this would also be the place where the Apostle Paul seemingly would spend some time after his conversion. After Paul became a Christian, we're told that, he says himself, that I did not confer with flesh and blood. Now, that's a good thing. You know, we ask each other, what do you think about this? You know, I want to think God said this to me. What do you think? It's a dangerous thing to do because you're then going to get a worldly, fleshly opinion. We need to just trust God. And if God says something... Let's go with what God says. And Paul does exactly that. He says, I didn't confer, confer with flesh and blood. And we find that Paul goes down into Arabia. Why? What was in Arabia? Mount Sinai. And this is where Paul goes. And I believe it's at this place. I mean, Paul had had his background in Judaism. Understanding the law. Upholding and defending the law. And so God takes him back to this very place. To undo everything that he'd learned to this point. And then put it all back together in context. And Galatians is a great commentary on that which Paul learns. And in that book he actually makes reference, we'll look at the scripture in a moment, to Mount Sinai. Now just to give us some idea where we're looking geographically, if we look at a map. You can see obviously Europe, the Mediterranean Sea, we've got Israel here. And then this area here, we'll just zoom in on that. So we've got the area here of Egypt. And we've got the uh, Israel up here, Jordan today here, the modern day Saudi Arabia uh, down this area here. Then we've got this highlighted area which is known as the Sinai Peninsula. To this day. Now this area here is the Red Sea. The Red Sea divides at the top end into two separate arms. Uh, You've got the Gulf of Suez that runs up here and you're familiar no doubt with the Suez Canal that they uh, spent many many uh, hours and uh, cost many lives digging through so they can make a route through into the Mediterranean here. Uh, And then you've got the Gulf of Aqaba, also part of the Red Sea. Uh, So these two extensions at the side there. We're looking a little bit closer still, again, the area of Goshen. This is the area that the children of Israel lived. You can see even from the satellite picture, this very fertile area. This is the area that Joseph chose to live, um, where the, the children of Israel lived in their time in Egypt. Um, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they came this way, the way of the Philistines, and they're told that they turned off this route into the wilderness. Now, the traditional site of Mount Sinai is here. This is because Helena, the mother-in-law of um, uh, Emperor Constantine, I ended up coming to try and find these places and put little flags in the map and say, well, that's where this is and so on. And many of the historical sites we have were purely guesswork not based upon any evidence and so this becomes known as mount sinai there is a mountain there it's near egypt it's got to be surely i mean that was about all the reasoning that went behind that Um, and so the idea then of course and you'll find in most maps in the the book of most bible back of most Bibles, i'll show you one in a minute that the route of the exodus some crosses over somewhere up here typically they'll tell you it was kind of a very reedy kind of boggy kind of uh, swampy area that they crossed which, once again, how amazing, all those Egyptians drowned in just a few feet of water, um, and so on. Um, And then, this is the area that they say they travel to. There's a lot of problems with that, we'll talk about that in a moment. But this is where the real Mount Sinai is. This is in Midian, this is where Horeb is, the mountain of God. There's a mountain today, you can see on the map known as Jabal El Laws, the mountain of the law, it's known as that's the map as I say we have in the most Bibles and it'll give us various routes but typically and often it has a question mark there um, but to show that this is where they believe Mount Sinai is and it'll give us the supposed routes and so on of the crossing uh, from Egypt well just a couple of scriptures to show you first of all back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 1 now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law the priest of Midian okay so we've just seen on the map where Midian was. It wasn't in the Sinai Peninsula. It was in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And there's no way Moses would have crossed back over into the, what we now as the Sinai Peninsula because that was still Egyptian territory at that time. As he comes to this place, to Horeb, the mountain of God, in Midian. And notice what we read there in verse 12. He says, certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee, this is God speaking to Moses, when thou hast brought forth the people of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. So there's no question that Moses was to bring the people back to the mountain in Arabia that he'd been on. Now, in Galatians... Paul, as I mentioned, a I believer been to this place, and he just makes a comment in verse twenty-five of chapter four of Galatians. For this Hagar, and he's using a type and shadow here, but is Mount Sinai in Arabia? And answers to Jerusalem, which now is and goes on, that's just you need to read the context to understand what Paul's really speaking about there. But the point is he makes it very clear that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Now, there's a number of problems with the site of Mount Sinai being in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, and that is that there's no historical evidence for it, there's no archaeological evidence for it, um, there's nothing to support it whatsoever. However, this other site that I mentioned, uh, this is the place, uh, this is uh, Jabalel Laws, uh, this is the mountain area that you can see, there's a range of mountains in this area, and there's been found various uh, evidence of dwelling structures where Israel clearly would have been able to camp at the foot of this mountain. There's an area about a mile across at the base of this mountain, and we'll look at some of the interesting things that are there and see the context of what Elijah would have seen as well. Now that's just a partly a, a picture, but also superimposed. Um, there's evidence that there was water in this area. There's kind of tidal marks on the ground. The water has been drawn onto this picture here, um, but this is the idea of what it would have been like when Israel were camped there and this large area where they could have camped and then this bit here coming up the side of the mountain. There's a bit hard to see from this picture I'm sure but just here there's a little uh, rocky structure and you zoom in on it, you can just about see here this is a satellite picture, this picture, there, this thing there you see highlighted in the black and again you see there just about this rocky structure but well, it seems to be some sort of place of sacrifice This is actually a a diagram that's been obtained from the uh, Saudi Arabian Department of Archaeology. Um, And clearly what we have here is a place where animals would have been able to come in and they'd be kept in these kind of pens up until the point of sacrifice. And there's an ash pit there and all sorts of things. So clearly at the base of this mountain, there's a place where sacrifices would have taken place. Just looking at Exodus 24 verse 12, we're also told, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord... And rose up early in the morning and built an altar. Now we've just looked at that altar under the hill, and we saw told twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, also at the base of this mountain we find these twelve pillars. These these all these blocks that would have easily been constructed into pillars. Clearly, they're not natural formations. These have been made uh, by hand. And so on. The other thing of real interest here is this place, you can just see an aerial picture here, there's a fence surrounding this compound here, but kind of a rocky structure you can just about see there. And this is again from the ground what it looks like. This seemingly is the altar where Aaron built the golden calf. Okay. Now again, it's fenced off. It's fenced off by the Saudi government. They won't let anybody in there. But on the edge, or on the side of these rocks, there is these apis bulls that have been carved and drawn into the rock face. Now of course, that was what the Egyptians worshipped. This is what the children of Israel have coming out of Egypt. It had been part of their um, history in the sense that they'd been growing up in Egypt. And of course, as Moses, they presume is now lost in the mountains somewhere they go to Aaron and Aaron says yes okay well we can get all the gold all the jewellery they melt it down and look out came this golden calf and so this is what we have Um, there's a, a notes here just simply says on that notice, um, archaeological area warning. It is unlawful to trespass. Violators are subjected to penalties stipulated in the antiquities regulations passed by royal decree. So, the Saudi government know this place exists, and they've put these uh, fences around to stop people getting to certain pits, uh, and they're aware that it's a very significant place. Um Another interesting scripture from Exodus 19, we're told, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended, as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Now, we're told, therefore, that God comes down on to the top of this mountain, that the top of the mountain is on fire. This is granite, this is not volcanic mountain. Um, and you can see that the top of this here is blackened. This isn't just some kind of clever artwork on the picture. Um, Bob Conuke um, was uh, one of the individuals who'd been out this place, um, and I know that Ron Matson, the former pastor here, spoke to Bob Conuke personally. And um, Bob had actually got a piece of rock from the top of this mountain. He took it back to America, gave it to a laboratory, and said, "I want you to check, test this and tell me what it is." And they said, "Well, where'd you get it from?" And he said, "Well, you tell me what it is, and I'll tell you where I got it." So they tested it, and they said, "Well, it's superheated granite." I said, I don't know what could have caused it to be heated to that extent, but that's what it is. How very interesting. Because that's exactly what the Bible said we should expect. Uh, and so we have this superheated granite, granite clearly that seems to have been on fire uh, at the top of this mountain. So, lots of very interesting things. Uh, also there, um, on this, uh, was on the, up at the top of the mountain, uh, there is engraved on this rock some very interesting artwork. If you look here, you can see Something that very clearly is a menorah. This is the Jewish lampstand. Uh, again, just engraven on the rock. Now, who did that? Why would somebody do that at this place? I just wonder whether or not at the top of the mountain, as God is given Moses the instructions of what to make. Moses go, going, hang on, God, just, just give me a second. Let me get a pencil. And starts making some notes and scribbling down. I just wonder. But whatever, however that came to be there, Clearly a very Jewish thing at the top of this mountain in the middle of Arabia. So, that's the situation. Now, Elijah is coming to this place. Elijah would have walked past, no doubt, that pile of rocks at the bottom, where we believe the golden calf would have been erected. Elijah's just come from Israel, where they had golden calves that they'd set up and been worshipping. And seeing all that had happened and looking back historically thinking what it would have been like for Moses to be at that place I wonder how he was challenged as he looks at what had done and suddenly realising that God wasn't defeated you know although the children of Israel had rebelled and they'd gone after this this golden calf with air and everything else God still came through and I wonder what Elijah was thinking as he's looking at these things he starts to climb up the mountain and so we pick it up in verse nine, and as he's climbing up the mountain, we're told he came thither unto a cave, and by the way, there is a, a cave part way up this mountain. And we're told, and he lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, I believe it's God that has led Elijah. Some people think that Elijah just ran here on his own accord. No, I think it's God that's led him here. The angel had already indicated that he'd long journey to make. I think this is God that's orchestrated this. So Elijah's here and God is saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, it's almost as if he's on trial. And he answers the question, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, throw down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now I think this is interesting, because he at this point thinks he's the only prophet that's left. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, if we were in that environment, if you're in that situation, you think, this is God. Something as powerful, as incredible as that. This is God. But we're told, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Well, that's got to be God, surely. Something as powerful, as, as majestic as an earthquake, just rocking and shaking the whole place. But then we're told, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Surely this is God. But the Lord was not in the fire. And then we're told, and after the fire, a still small voice. You see, Elijah have been wanting some sort of conclusion to this whole thing. Wanting to see the hearts of the people turn back to the Lord. Even, I guess, hoping that Ahab himself would repent. And maybe even that Jezebel would be converted. And instead of this, he's finding he's fleeing for his life, questioning, you know, Lord, this wasn't the result we wanted. And all these things happen. And finally, this still small voice, and we're told, and it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, he's going to give exactly the same response as he gave a moment ago. You know, when God asks a question twice, God is trying to get us to think. You know, God asks questions not because he needs information. I think we understand that. God doesn't need to know something that Elijah's got hidden here. God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. So when God asks a question, the purpose is to get us to think. And now he asks the same question of Elijah again. After this whole situation, with the wind and with the earthquake, with the fire, this still small voice comes. A voice of peace, a voice of calm and said i've been elijah replies i've been very jealous for the lord god of hosts because the children of israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword and i even i only am left and they seek my life to take it away you know i think that as elijah is saying this a second time he gets to hear what he's saying you know, sometimes you may have kind of had that experience and I, I certainly know from speaking to other people that teach and preach that it's a very real and common experience that sometimes you're saying something and you're kind of listening to yourself as you say it there's been many Sundays I've been here and I've been teaching and I've gone back after I thought, wow, I didn't know that and it's, you know, I just said it but I didn't know it because as you know, God starts to reveal something to you and I think Elijah's giving this answer here and he's listening to his own answer he kind of knows it academically. But suddenly God is saying, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And he says, because God, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And he's going, yeah, I have. That was, that was where this all started, wasn't it? You know, Back in his bedroom, wherever he was, somewhere in the Galilee region, before he'd even stepped foot out of his door to make his journey to see Ahab he had been searching through scripture as he'd been looking in Deuteronomy and seeing those scriptures to speak of the judgment that God would bring if people rejected remembering again the fire that had burned in his heart yes I, I was, wasn't I? I was very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel sake forsaken thy covenant and thinking, yeah, I remember sitting at home just being amazed that the nation could go From bad to worse. That the people could reject our God. Reject the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God that has led us through these years. The God that led us through that period of the judges, which was a terrible time. But the God that then established the kingdom. Who allowed us to have David. That great king. And then his son Solomon, who brought the nation to the greatest height that it's ever known. And then now to see what has become. And I think as Elijah saying this. The reason God asks him the question is because he wants him to think about what he's saying. He says, yeah, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down thine altars. And remember that they'd appointed priests of anybody that fancied to go at the job. It was kind of priests are us. Anybody could have a go. And they slain thy prophets. And Elijah's thinking, yeah, and this is why I stepped out of my house in the first place because I prayed to God I asked you God that you would stop the rain on account of what you'd said in your word they slain the prophets with the sword and I'm the only one that's left I'm the only one that's left and I think at this point Elijah's really challenged and I think the challenge is are you prepared to carry on What you started. Elijah's come to this place of doubting now, questioning, being fearful for his own life. But at the start of this, he had no concern for his own life as he walked into Ahab's palace. He could have so easily been arrested and put to death there and then. He walks up to the king and boldly says, King, you are wrong. Then the king later comes and says, Elijah, this is all your fault. If you remember, we looked at last week and Elijah... Throws it back at the king and says, not my fault, your fault. Wasn't fearful for his life then, but now. And I think God just brings him back to his place. Now What about you this morning? What about your walk with God? Think back to when you became a Christian. Think back to that moment. Think how you felt. Think of the zeal you had. Think of the excitement, the desire you had to tell other people. You know, you see a, a new believer, someone who's just come to, to Christ. And there's such a a fire about them. But suddenly we get older. We mature, we get used to things. And then, of course, we have that well, you must be sensible. You mustn't carry on. You know, you can't say those kind of things. And we kind of everything is a little bit watered down for us, doesn't it? And then we start to have problems where we kind of even question and doubt. And you know, some of you, when you came to the Lord, the Lord may have laid on your heart some calling, some challenge that the Lord wanted you to undertake for Him. Well, where are you now this morning? Have you become a little bit like Elijah that you've just got weary and? You're resting under a tree, you think, I can't carry on with this, God. Well, think back to where it started. Think back to that moment when you became a Christian. When God put his Holy Spirit in you. When God forgave you your sin. When you were purchased back. The highest possible price was paid for you. At that moment, were you prepared to just abandon everything of this world and say, yes, God, I will follow you, whatever. Whatever it costs me, whatever it takes. I think that's why God asked this question of Elijah twice. Think back to where it all began. He had, as I say, been very jealous. He comes to the end of himself though at this point, and we often find ourselves there where our natural enthusiasm has faded away. You know the question for Elijah? the question for you and I is, are you willing to complete that which you started? In Luke chapter 14, we read this, picking up verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, and his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And you know, many of us, we come to the Lord and we're quite happy with those verses. Because it's like, yes Lord, I will do anything. I will give you anything. I'm so glad that I've been saved. You've saved me from hell. I don't deserve it, but you've saved me. And then we move on. Verse 28 carries on and says, For which of you intending to build a tower sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all the Behold, it began, so all the behold began to mock him. You now, is that you this morning? Did you start with a great flourish? Did you lay the foundation and then you've kind of left off building? And others maybe look on and say, Oh, I, I thought you were a Christian. What a horrible thing that is when that happens. I'm sure at times it's happened to each of us where somebody says, Oh, I thought you were a Christian. Because something you said or did, they perceived it to be unchristian. Verse thirty, carrying on, saying, "This man began to build and was not able to finish." Do people say that of us? Could they say that of us? That you started this Christian life, you had so much zeal for God at one point, but if you come to that place where you don't have the same fire, and people look at you and go, "Oh, oh I thought you went to church, didn't you? Oh, you still go, to you? Okay," but just, you become watered down. Or well, what king going to make war against another? Sitting not down first and consulted whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassage and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. He see, it's not just the first few weeks of our Christian life. It's a continual thing. And for Elijah, it wasn't just that initial enthusiasm he had. This was going to be a lifelong commitment, and God was reminding him of how he'd failed at the beginning. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. And you know, that word's come out a couple of times. We've been looking in our inductive Bible studies in James about the trials that God allows in our lives. And that James says we should consider it all joy. Because God has a wonderful plan through those things. Because he wants us to have endurance. So that we keep on keeping on. Have, we should have, with, run with endurance the race set before us. You know, as we said last week, you think of a, an athlete, somebody doing a 1,500 metres or whatever else, and they run at a steady pace for the whole race. And in that last section, suddenly, somebody will go. Somebody picks up the pace, and then they all sprint to the finish line. You know, we're, we've got to start sprinting for the finish line. We are in the last days. We know this. We look at the world around us. There's so much that was being prophetically fulfilled and we're told that we should be looking unto Jesus the author and finish of our faith and we're just told simply who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross Jesus didn't quit he didn't give up despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself at least you become weary and discouraged in your souls the writer of the Hebrews knows what it's like and says look you can be discouraged. That's going to happen. But let's get our eyes on Jesus. Let's remember what he did. Jesus came with the intention of obeying his Father, of giving his life. He didn't give up. He didn't waver, not for a moment. He did it because of his love for you and I. As uh, Jared highlighted uh, during the week, I think it was a Bible study we were talking, and it was something that David actually brought out in one of our Bible studies in Hebrews. That God declares our name before the Father. God declares, boldly, proudly declares your name before God the Father. Jesus does that. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. So we need not be ashamed of him. Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So, this challenge, this call this morning, just the same to us as it was to Elijah. Yet, think back to where it began. Think back to the call that the Lord placed upon your life. Think how you felt at that moment. And then God carries on and says, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. This is Elijah, we're not finished. We've got more to do together and what a wonderful thing when you suddenly realise that God doesn't need you but he's using you and he says come on Elijah remember let's step out of this go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus and when thou comest anoint Hazel to be king over Syria and then when you've done that and Jehu the son of shall thou anoint to be king over Israel well that means that Ahab's going doesn't it and Elisha the son of Shaphat, of Abel, how would we pronounce that? Mihula, something like that. You can mispronounce that at home later yourself. Shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room? Elijah, there's going to be others. You're not the last. It doesn't stop with you. And then God said, it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay and him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Elijah, We haven't finished yet. And God says to you this morning, We've not finished yet. There's more to do. And then God just adds this I love this. (laughs) Oh, Elijah, by the way, I still have 7,000 left, all the knees of which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. You know, you thought you were alone. Remember who I am? I'm God. It's kind of a, I'm very pleased you're jealous. I think God is pleased when He looks at us and He sees that fervent determination to serve Him, to witness, to be bold, to not be ashamed of the gospel and so on. But there's, sometimes we need these reminders, by the way, I've been in control all along. And God just adds this, you know, God could have told Elijah this at any time in the last couple of chapters. But you see, God has been working on Elijah. And now it's just a reminder, by the way, I'm in control. There's another 7,000. Don't worry. The kingdom is not about to come to an end. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was ploughing with 12 yoke of oxen before him and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. I wonder what Elijah thought. Of suddenly this hairy man, as we know Elijah, Elijah was, just walks up to him and puts this kind of garment upon him. And we're told he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? It's like, this is all of God, this isn't my decision. You see, I think that's interesting, that, that phrase, where he says, you know, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? You know, Elisha is no longer, Please come and join me, I need help. So this is now, God's doing all of this now it's not about me anymore this isn't my decision, I'm not begging you to come this is what God is doing I'm just along for the ride and he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him it's interesting that Elisha now comes and we'll see this character come to the fore. And we're told that the first thing he does is not embark on a how to be the greatest course. He comes and ministers to Elijah. In John 13, 15 to 16, Jesus said, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither He that is sent greater than he that sent him. Yeah, there's many scriptures that highlight that we should serve each other, whatever our position. Elisha just comes and serves. It's a great, it's the best way of learning, you know, just following after someone. And, you know, it's good scripturally to have someone that we look to, that we follow after. In the book of Hebrews, speaks there of those who have gone before us, those that we look to, who have encouraged us in the faith. And he says, whose faith follow? Be like them. Elisha is going to be like Elijah. Possibly even bolder. And we'll look at that as that comes out over the next couple of weeks. In closing, Oswald Chambers makes this comment. He says, The angel did not give Elijah a vision, or explain the scriptures to him, or do anything remarkable he told Elijah to do the most ordinary thing viz. arise and eat the administrations of God come over and over again in the most commonplace manner possible, we look for some great big alteration, something marvellous like the wind or an earthquake or fire, and the voice of God tells us to do the most ordinary, sorry and the voice of God tells us to do what the most ordinary voice we know might tell us to do and after the fire a still small voice, i.e. A sound of gentle stillness. The one thing the Lord was in. Then came the command, go, return. God sent Elijah right back after giving giving him an extraordinary heartening. To do what he had told him. The haphazard may tumble about as it likes now. Elijah has learned that God's order comes that way. You see, I think what Oswald Chambers is trying to say there is, and we see it with that situation calling Elisha. No longer is Elijah looking at the results, looking at the outcome of any particular thing. He's now going with God. And whatever happens, that's up to God. And if Elisha makes his request, can I go back and say goodbye to mum and dad? And Elisha says, Yep, yeah, whatever. I'm just it's all about God now. It's not about his own outcome from any situation or whatever happens. And so again, this morning... Let's get back to where we started. Let's remember the fire, the enthusiasm we had when we began. But let's now go forward with a little bit more understanding of the way God works. We don't need to know the answers to everything. We don't need to see the outcomes that we expect. It's not about that. It's about looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's remembering that he endured because he loved us. And so we will endure because we love him and he will give us the grace let's bow our hearts well father we thank you for this wonderful portion in your word this morning thank you for Elijah and thank you father that in scripture you give us the good and the bad you tell us lord the, the real highlights of those that followed you but father we also see their failings we also see when they struggled when they were depressed or discouraged and lord we're able to see those reflections in our own lives and this morning lord as we Meditate as we think on these things. Father, speak to us. Remind us again of the joy. Lord, as David once prayed, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. And Lord, let us carry on together. Guide us, Lord. Guard us. But Lord, once again, excite us about the fact that we are called Christians because we follow Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.